We've been looking at Revelation in pieces, uh, not going straight through. Uh, this is the, first, uh, the fifth sermon now in our Revelation series. So we're about midway is the time that we'll take on this. And, and I want to say for those, uh, most of the feedback I've gotten is positive, and that's certainly appreciated. But I, I do want to, being here 17 years, I know our church pretty well. And I know there's a diversity of opinion within our church uh, on eschatology. If you're not familiar with that word, you take the word for uh, last days or end times, eschaton, you put it with ology, and you get the doctrine of uh, the, the end times, the last days. And there's, there's some differing opinions on that. But I know uh, uh, when you hear an announcement of a series on Revelation, a lot of you get excited because you, the assumption is, well, the, the end time puzzle is going to be solved. Uh, all the confusion you may feel is going to be uh, cleared up. And while I certainly hope I haven't added any confusion to what you may feel reading Revelation, I realize some are probably a little disappointed in my approach so far and that I have not debuted or debunked uh, competing millennial views. A lot of people do that when they go to Revelation. Um, by millennial, I don't mean the generation. I don't mean you millennials, uh, that you have a different view from your grandparents, although you might. But by millennial, in the context of Revelation, we are, are looking ahead. We haven't talked about this yet, but there's a, a previewing in Revelation of a, of a reign of Christ uh, from New Jerusalem. And the question is, do we understand that to be a, an actual millennium, a, a real uh, thousand years, or, or do we take it figuratively? Uh, godly people differ on how best to understand Revelation's imagery and, and its numbers and its characters. And, that, and that's not to say that any view is equal. I've tried as I've gone through this carefully to say uh, all views aren't equal. It, it's not just a toss-up and well, whatever you say it means is fine and whatever I say it means is fine. I, I'm not taking that approach lest I be misunderstood. But I, I, I do think that eschatology, the doctrine of the end times, it's the last set of beliefs that Christians should separate over. Um, not that it's unimportant, I'll say it again, uh, but I think we should respect differences among godly people who love the Lord and who affirm his return but may sequence it out uh, a little differently. I have what I trust are biblically formed views, but that doesn't cause me to ridicule uh, competing end-time viewpoints that differ from mine or be particularly dogmatic about mine, the only thing I'm willing to be dogmatic about is the main affirmation we all have to make, that the return of Jesus Christ is a real event. That's core Christian doctrine. That's written in blood, as it were. To think about my blood, ink, pencil uh, metric for going through this book, the, the curtain will fall on humanity's sin act. Uh, write it in ink. But exact means of that, sequencing of judgment events, we should sketch our understandings there in pencil. In other words, it's not worth fighting over. You can make a case, you can present what you believe, you, 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 you do the uh, most justly with the scriptures as we have them. Uh, but I think, I, I think eschatological fights, you've probably seen this commercial, it's been, if you, if you watch sports, it, it comes on. Uh, Eschatological fights are, are, to me, a lot like that commercial where there's the guy in the small car at the stoplight and the muscle car pulls up beside him. It looks like a Dodge Challenger. And the guy looks over and goes, you want to go? You want to go, bro? I knew guys like that in seminary when it came to biblical prophecy. 
they had this muscle car eschatology and were always going at those they considered mistaken. Uh, what I was taught in seminary concerning the end hasn't substantively changed for me, more so my manner of holding it. So if you want to tell me, for instance, let's just give this a, a real-time example, uh, one of the controversial things is, is about the rapture. Is there going to be a rapture or not? And people have, have divided over that and fought that out. If you try to tell me, hey, there's going to be a rapture of the church, that is the, the, the church is going to be caught up to heaven before the great and terrible tribulation of seven years on the earth and then the return of Jesus. If you're convinced that's the right end time sequence, you may be right. Uh, but if you're convinced that is the right, the right end times sequence and any Christian who doesn't see it this way is wrong, that's not fine. Be as convinced as you wish to be on these matters, but where godly people do arrive at differ, different conclusions, and we can and do with eschatology, don't make your eschatology sequencing a matter of fellowship. I can see arguments for anticipating a rapture of the church. I can also see the arguments that uh, counterpoint that. It's just not worth fighting over. The rapture is not a core Christian belief. If you deny the Lord's return, we do fight over that. Because that is a core Christian belief. But if eschatology, listen, if it makes you cranky and hard to fellowship with, you're doing it wrong. Even if your sequencing of the events is right. Uh, I've, I have met people through the years who, who eschatologically are just bitter. There's no other way to put it. And, and they're so tied in, in this understanding they have and everybody else is wrong if they don't see it this way. And I, I just think it's just... I know how it happens. I, I'm a theologian. I do theology for a living. Uh, but um, it took me, a, I'll put it this way, it took me a long time to learn what Madeline Lingle wrote in, in one of her books called Walking on Water, that we draw people to Christ, not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are. She says, we draw them to Christ by showing them a light that is so lovely they want with all of their hearts to know the source of it. We get this light and its source in every biblical book, but also including Revelation, because this is, after all, remember the very first line of the book? This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not the revelation of Cole's ideas about Revelation or anybody else's. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so at every end point throughout this book, including from where the dragon is standing on the shore of the sea, as, as chapter 12 ends there, the light of Christ is never fully eclipsed in this book by Satan or by anyone else. Now, apocalyptic imagery, thinking of Madeline Langle's words here, that, that we don't draw people to Christ by loudly discrediting what they believe or telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely they want with all their hearts to know the source of it, it would seem apocalyptic imagery would, would not be so lovely uh, in, in that consideration. It, it's kind of like uh, burnt rubber. <laughs> it's like Mad Max. But still, Jesus' light burns bright in Revelation. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. If time permits, at the end, we're going we're to sing the Hallelujah Chorus together, because that line is, is from it.
This is why, just starting here with 11.15, looking at the text, this is why the powers of the world, and the powers of the world are both human and spiritual, they're so opposed to Jesus and threatened by him. Because to to borrow a Shakespearean line, uh, Jesus has a daily beauty that makes them ugly. And the reason we took so much text this morning is I want you to see in in chapter 11 here, end of chapter 11, all of chapter 12, we, we see the ugliness of the nations raging against God, burning themselves out in their raging because they don't want the rule of Jesus over them. We see the ugliness of the nations here, and we also see the ugliness of Satan who long ago chose to pit himself against God and is forever full of rage because he cannot get the one thing he wants most in the world and that is the worship of Jesus both objectively and subjectively. Remember uh, Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by Satan and the final temptation is he shows him the kingdom's And he says, all of this I I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Satan wants the worship Jesus receives and also Jesus' worship of him. (laughs) So in these texts, as we have them before us here, neither the fallen human powers nor their fallen spiritual lord, small l lord, wants the world to burn out bright in the purifying fires of God's judgment because this world is all they have. To stay in power, to keep their hold on power, for their power to keep, the world has to stay sinful. Now, let's take a step back from the passage and think about two realities in the background Passages John Reed read to it, us to uh, read it to us. Uh, the end of chapter eleven, all the way through chapter twelve. There's two realities here that we have to appreciate. One reality is that our world exists within a cosmic battle. It's not a, a battle of equal opposite forces because evil is is a parasite. Evil has to have something good first existing for evil then to corrupt that. Evil is not original. It's not innovative. It's a, it's, a, it's a parasitic challenger on the good that God makes and then evil infects that. And that's the, the big story of the Bible is what God is doing about evil corrupting his good creation of the earth and people made in his image and likeness. The second half of chapter 12 gives us this cosmic battle in the background, unseen but ongoing. It's been going on for eons now. The other reality in the background is that the world has chosen a side in this cosmic battle. And so when we read chapter 11, verse 15, the kingdom of this world, a lot of times we think of it as kingdoms. Uh, King James rendered it that way. It's actually just kingdom. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That is resisted by what the Bible calls the powers. The powers are both human and spirit, but this world is all they have, and so they do not want the creator of this world, the rightful ruler of it, reclaiming it, reconciling to himself what they have claimed for themselves. And so looking now down at verse 18 in chapter 11, 
this worship of the 24 elders, what they say, verse 18, chapter 11, the nations raged, but your wrath came, and for the time, uh, or the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, for those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And that, in a phrase, is what Revelation is about. That last line there in verse 18. God destroying destroyers, both human and spirit. God's wrath is for that. God's wrath is not raging. We see the contrast down in chapter 12. Satan rages, but not God, because the difference is rage turns in on itself. It's self-destructive. Now, chapter 12, verse 12 in the ESV uses the term wrath in regards to Satan, but Satan's wrath is a raging, while God's wrath is aimed out at destroying destroyers. His wrath is the working of his justice. If God's wrath was raging, there would never be any mercy. And yet the Bible always maintains this tension throughout between justice and mercy. And we need mercy because all of us put in with the destroyer. We chose self-righteousness. We chose unrighteousness. The losing side in the cosmic battle was, was our selection. We, we've all chosen to dance with the devil in the pale moonlight. Remember that from that movie? But when you come into the light of Jesus by his gracious invitation, we finally see our old dance partner for who he is, a dragon. What's a dragon? Something that devours, something that destroys. That's the point of calling him a dragon. Look again, chapter 11, verse 18. The nations raged. What's that an echo of? Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Psalm 2. And the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed one. Psalm 2. Verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints. There's justice and mercy. And those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Because Jesus has already defeated his foes, through his life, his death, his resurrection, because Jesus has already defeated his foes, at his return, he kicks out of his new earth the ultimate destroyer, who is Satan. And this is what we see in chapter 12. This is the story, the story of why Satan gets kicked out is chapter 12. God has a challenger who has to be put out. He's been thrown down at creation. He's been put down at the cross and he finally must be put out at the new creation coming. A cosmic battle cannot go on forever. The destroying destroyer from back when he invaded Eden, he has to be finally cast out before Eden can come back to us. Chapter 12, verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. And the sense of woe is, oh, God, this, this is awful for you. How terrible for you. It's not a woe to you kind of shaking the fist at it. It's a sense of, ah, oh, woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil's come down to you in great wrath, raging, because he knows that his time is short. His wrath is self-destructive. 
Some translations have it filled with fury. He comes down filled with fury because he knows his time is short. If you're, if you're filled with fury, you don't think right. He never has. He never will. Now, looking at chapter 12, we've got two sections. And, you know, we're taking these passages in, in big chunks. And, and so there's a lot that we, we don't talk about. But I'm not going to give you a one, two takeaways today. Instead, let's just do first section of chapter 12, which is roughly verses 1 to 6, second section of chapter 12, because in this text, we, we really just have some things we need to understand. There's just some bearing points we need here. And so first section in chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, presents us with a child and a woman and a dragon. And we can put the identities of the child and the dragon within the context of chapter 12. Chapter 12 tells us the child is Jesus. Chapter 12 tells us the, the, the dragon is Satan. But, but who is the woman? Uh, the woman makes appearance uh, throughout this, and it, and it seems to be one of these both ands. Best I know to take it. Seems to be talking about Eve. Seems to also be talking about Israel. Uh, the imagery of a woman can also apply to Old Covenant Israel, but it can also uh, be looking back at Eve. What you seem to be having in verses 1 through 6 is biblical history, cosmic history even if you will, being portrayed. It seems the first six verses of Revelation 12 here, we have something of a messianic history, the promise given to Eve through then her descendants, Israel, through Abraham. If we go all the way back to Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve are told what? Remember the very first preaching of the gospel in Scripture? It's preached to a woman, Eve. That your offspring will bruise the serpent's head. He will strike your offspring's heel, but, but, but uh, he will uh, crush uh, the serpent's head. So in verses 1 through 6, we get a child. We know this is Jesus, verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. A woman, Eve slash Israel, seems to be the best way to take that in, in everything that it's encompassing. And then a dragon with demons who are fallen angels, verse 4. His tail swept a third of the stars of heaven. That seems to be a reference to fallen angels. So we've got a a child, we've got a woman, we've got a dragon. Now, the dragon doesn't look like the Collierville one we have on our fridge at home, okay? Because both my youngest kids are Collierville dragons, and so we've got dragons around the house. No, the one in chapter 12, verse 3, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. This is Satan, verse 9 tells us, who tried to destroy Eve tried to destroy God's people Israel from her, tried to destroy Jesus who is from both. So this passage is, is looking in, in kind of ultimate terms. And so this description of verse 3, Satan in verse 3, these seven diadems, these actually correspond interestingly to seven titles given to Satan all through Revelation. Uh, you get him called Wormwood in chapter 8. Uh, there's a a Hebrew term, uh, Abaddon, uh, and a Greek term, Apollyon, both in, in, in chapter 9, about the destructiveness, uh, the bottomless pit. That's just a, a, a 
three names of the seven that you get in Revelation for Satan. And so these seven diadems on his head seem to be an indication of, of his work. But what we've got here in verses 1 through 6 is plot points in the bigger story. Putting it very, very simply, God has a, a purpose for redemption and there's a destroyer who wants to foil that purpose. A destroyer tries to destroy the redeemer. Now how does he do it? How does he make the attempt? There's a French-speaking Swiss writer of the last century named uh, Denis de Rougemont. I had to go get the pronunciation from Google. And he wrote a book called The Devil's Share. And in it, he had a great insight on this. Here's his words. Satan's victories will always be sterile. Think about that word, sterile. For one does not become a father by stealing a child. One can steal power, but not authority. It's interesting because in verse 10, you get, I hear a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Authority is something only God has, really. Satan doesn't have it. He wants it. What we've got here is the sterility of, of Satan on display. Verses 1 through 6. The only thing he's ever fathered are lies, according to Jesus, who called him the father of lies. Again, De Rougemont's words, one does not become a father by stealing a child. What does the dragon try to do? Tries to devour the child, steal the child. One can steal power, but not authority. Satan's victories will always be sterile. And thus he stole power, but what he really wants is authority fatherly authority and he knows he'll never get that so what is the work of satan it's to create chaos out of his bitterness he's always adversarial that's what satan means he accuses he deceives he enslaves and destroys and he does so by using our own sin it's that's his power he's not an originator or an initiator of our sin the devil has never made you do it but he is the most cunning opportunist in existence. He's the watcher of humanity. And he's a savvy learner. And what Satan works to do ultimately is to cast off our divine father. He knows that God is reconciling the world to himself. He doesn't want that. It's, it's, it's as if Satan wants to adopt us himself. You've got a mother and a child and a dragon, and a dragon is trying to, is trying to consume the, the child. And it's almost as if Satan wants to adopt us himself, but his adoption is consumption. He promises us freedom, but he delivers bondage. That's how he works. And he's long since been exposed in this. If he could not be God the Father himself, his best play was to try and consume the Son of God at his most vulnerable point, at his incarnation. Now, verses 7 through 17, second half of this chapter, this cosmic battle that I mentioned already. How should we understand this cosmic battle ongoing? Why should there, should there be a cosmic battle if God is all-powerful all and already victorious? You get the initiation of it in verse 7, the war arose in heaven and Satan is kicked out. But we know from Ephesians 6 that the, the battle is ongoing. What's the point of the battle? Unseen, 
but ongoing around us? The only way I know to answer that is that God is a God of means, not just of ends. God is a God of means, not just ends. The end is sure. Revelation tells us the end is not in doubt, but the means to the end of of the kingdom of this world becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, that going live, the means to that end involves this cosmic battle playing out. It's being waged even now. Angels under the command of one named Michael, verse 7, fighting Satan and his fallen angels on Jesus' behalf. I know this is wild, but it's here. Don't start praying to Michael. Don't even really think about Michael except to know the enthronement of the King of kings and Lord of lords whom he serves which the dragon has opposed from Old Testament messianic promises going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way through the New Testament incarnation of Jesus on through the church age. Jesus' enthronement is secure by way of his own victory. Verse 11 says, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. That's the source of victory spiritually. So Jesus' enthronement is secure by his own victory. But it also gets secured by Michael and these angelic hosts waging cosmic battle. It's a both and. Jesus' enthronement is secure and gets secured at the same time. But still, why does it have to be this way? God is a God of means as well as ends. Why these means and not just the end? I don't know, except that the glory and rejoicing at the dragon's final defeat is all the more heightened by these means playing out as God has decreed. I want to turn to Tolkien here. You probably saw that coming because uh, he was a master storyteller. And the reason I like reading Tolkien is that it, it has the ring of truth throughout. It's obvious that, that, that he had a, a Christian worldview. Now, you have to be a real Lord of the Rings nerd to read the Cimmerillion, <laughs> which is the creation account of Middle Earth, but I mention this in the context of, of why, why let Satan rebel? Why let the, 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 the end linger, the world linger on and, and the end, uh, gr- the world grown under the weight of sin? Why does God do that? Now, we don't know the full counsels of God as to why, but we can catch hints here and there, scents and smells and sounds that have the ring of biblical truth. And, and so Tolkien, the, the way he told his creation story in the Cimmerillion, it's similar to Genesis in that a rebellion happens against a Luvatar, who in Tolkien is the creator of Middle Earth, where all the Lord of the Rings action takes place, where all the hobbits are. Iluvatar creates through song. He sings things into being. This is parallel to Genesis, even though Tolkien hated allegory, and that where we see God creating in Genesis, what do we see? God delighting in what he has made. It is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. It's almost like God sang everything into being. But in Tolkien's myth, one of the angel-like assistants named Melkor rebels against Iluvatar and begins to sing his own rough, jarring tune. It's out of sync. In my imagination, it sounds like Scandinavian death metal, you know. (laughs) It's just nothing you want to hear. 
But rather than silence the discordant music of Melkor, Iluvatar weaves it in into a song of greater beauty. In other words, he beats Melkor even while allowing Melkor to rebel. Now, I'm using fantasy and myth here to illustrate apocalypse, so take everything with a grain of salt. I would not uh, appeal to Mormon creation myth, etc., and say, well, you know, it's like the Mormons say, no. That competes with Genesis. But I do think how Tolkien put it has the ring of truth when we consider from Genesis on through Revelation what has happened to God's creation. When we consider the chaos that Satan has introduced, the destruction that he continues inciting even now because he is a relentless enemy and misery and resentment and bitterness and pain and death is his song. And so, yes, God could have ended Satan immediately and let a very different story play out. And when we're hurting due to real evil in this world, it's natural to wish he would have. But it's never been, and we see it here in the text of Scripture, it's never been a matter of God lacking the power. Satan is not his equal opposite. He's a fallen, created being bound for irreversible judgment because the dragon cannot change his scales and he doesn't want to. He'll never not be the devourer. But somehow, not unlike what Iluvatar does with Melkor sabotaging his creation song, in that Iluvatar overrides it, outbeauties it, if you will. Likewise, when you go from fantasy to biblical reality, God gains a greater glory, which we get to enter in and see at the end. He gains a greater glory. The beauty of that greater glory he gains will be greater still for all that has marred it here and now. We have to take that by faith, but that's exactly what faith does. Sees the unseen, hopes for it, not not as a wishing, but an investing. That the beauty of the greater glory we're bound for is greater all the more because of the things that have marred it here and now. The last line of chapter 12, and he stood on the sand of the sea. You know what's interesting about that in the placement of Revelation is that the very first line of Revelation 21 tells us the sea will eventually be no more. In other words, look where the dragon positions himself. Satan will eventually be no more. The ground will collapse under him, all his works washed out, burned up. His domain is here and now, but not in the world to come, the new earth. And when we're there, hearing the music in that place full on, without any filters, we will know then already that we long had the tune. The tune will be familiar because it's the gospel that we've believed. Now we're going to stand and, and sing together.